So one of the great victories of Satan has been to make those subjects most off-limits that we most need to talk about. That he has managed to make taboo in the life of the church and in the life of Christians those things in which Christians ought to be able to talk about more openly and most honestly compared to every other group of people in the whole world. And, And it's interesting that he's been able to have this inroad particularly within the church. Because we are, as the church, those that when we were baptized made a public declaration that I am not strong within myself. I am, in fact, weak within myself. I am not able to save myself. I am not able to help myself. No, praise God that he has sent his son to do so. Praise God that he has given me his church to partner with me. So in our baptism, there's a literal declaration of weakness. And yet still, still we find ourselves tempted, don't we? We find ourselves tempted to deal with one another in a pretense, to deal with one another with with a, a smile that covers up all the things that are going on beneath, with a smile that covers up all the sorrow, all of the the questions, all of the doubts, all of the issues, all of the things that we 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 are struggling with, and it's ironic because it's it's like we think that we need that everyone is needing our strength, isn't it? We, we deal with everybody as though everyone needs us to be the, immo- the immovable rock or refuge in their lives. But what I've realized recently is that we don't connect to one another through strength. We connect to one another in our weaknesses. We connect to one another in our struggles. We connect to one another when we get to that real life spot, that real life space in, when in which there's this epiphany that takes place and you're like, I thought I was the only one. You, you think this too? You feel this way too? You struggle like this too? And in that, the Lord begins to knit hearts together. In, in that, the Lord begins to change worldviews. In that, the Lord begins to transform how we relate to each other and then how we're able to bear burdens with one another and help one another. And one of the subjects that Satan has made taboo in the life of the church is depression. Depression. And this has really come onto my radar because of how many people within our congregation have come to me. And they always come almost apologetically. Almost apologetically. Like, I I wish I wasn't talking to you. I hate that I'm talking to you about this. And and I'm sorry that you have to hear me talk about this. And so I have found that they're usually incredibly surprised when I tell them, I've experienced that too. I've been where you are. I know what you're going through. I know what you're facing. I know how you're thinking. I, it's different, but, but I've been there. And, and, and both of us have this epiphany, right, of, oh, my heavens, I went through this by myself, and I didn't have to. I thought I was the problem, and, and really, this is, there's something common here. This is a common ground that, there's, that we face. And so what, I, what I've realized is that we need to start this conversation among one another, that defeats this pretense, that allows us to actually begin to, to dialogue in a helpful way, actually enables us to have conversation so that, so that we can have help and so that we can offer help to each other. And, and depression is just one. There are, there are many, there are legion issues, right, of issues in which we could say the exact same thing. Now, on an issue as tender as this, I think there are some things that we need to establish on the front end. Yes, I've struggled, but my struggle is likely very different from yours, 
okay? That, that I, I would never in a million years want to pretend that if you're depressed that I am an expert on your depression and an expert on what you need or anything. I, I am not even an expert on my own and on my own struggles. And so I don't want you to hear this like sage on a stage saying, thus saith the Lord for your situation. I have no desire this morning to give you four steps out of depression because I don't think the Bible does that. Okay, I, wanna, I want us to change instead the way that we're looking at it. Secondly, what I would say is, is that all depression is the result of sin, in the sense that all cursed things in the world are the result of the original sin that originated in the Garden of Eden. Okay, so when, when Adam and Eve sinned for the very first time, that's when sorrow came into the world for the first time. That, that's when pain came into the world for the first time. That's when disease came into the world for the first time, okay? So, so all depression is the result of sin, and the, the, that's good news because why? Jesus came, and Jesus is overcoming sin. Jesus has defeated sin through the resurrection. Jesus has defeated not just sin, but the power of sin the, and the pain of sin. And so there is a day coming in, in which that means that there will be no more depression. There is a day coming that the, 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 uh, John says in the Revelation in which the final tear will be wiped away from our eye. But, but because, even though depression is the result of sin, it doesn't mean it's because you have sinned. I want you to hear me say that. It doesn't mean that you have sinned. We, we see in, like Job, right? Job is afflicted by the Lord in a way that brings him into a remarkably depressed state in which he says, God, just, just let me die. But it's at the testing because of his righteousness, actually. I, I think that uh, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, he, he sa- he, it says that he, he, he came very near to death and that the, the capillaries in his body little, literally burst. He was under such distress, such emotional distress, such spiritual distress, distress so that blood began to come through the pores of his skin. You could certainly say that he was depressed, but we know that the risen Son of God was a spotless lamb, unblemished by sin. And so, of course, sin, you can sin and rebel against God and rebel against the way God's designed, and that can bring depression in your life. But you can also be sinned against and it bring depression in your life. You can also experience just rotten things in this world and that bring on depression. That is no fault of your own. You can have uh, disease and affliction and all, all a million different ways. And so I want you to hear me say that depression does not equal sin in your life. And the last thing that I want you I want to set up is there when, when I was really struggling with depression, one of the verses that I would most often quote to myself was Romans 8:28, that all things work together for the good of those who love God. And can I be honest with you for a second? Like, there were times in which that just made me angry or frustrated, irritated. And, and it made me frustrated, not because I don't believe that promise, I believe it with all of my heart, but because I couldn't feel it. I couldn't feel it, right? Like, like, how is it I could go through something that is so miserable? How is it I could go through something that is so painful, so devastating, and then constantly be telling myself, well, this is good. This is going to be good. Everything's going to be good. Because it wasn't good. And Romans 8.28 doesn't give us a mandate to call bad things good. In fact, in fact, we may struggle with depression for the rest of our life, and we on this side of eternity may never be able to see how it worked out for good. But the promise is, is that one day we will be able to look back from the perspective of God and be able to see how our lives 
fit together in the glory of his providence. And at that point, at that point, we will be able to say all those bad things, they weren't for God's glory and for my good. And I actually want to frame up the sermon this, this morning in that Romans 8.28 language, from that Romans 8.28 perspective. And I want to ask, and I want us to see, zoomed out, the theological perspective of how can depression or anything bad for that matter bring about good in my life? How can something that is incredibly bad potentially bring about what is gonna what God calls an eternal good? And the first thing that I want us to see is that depression will receive God's kindness. That depression will receive God's kindness. Now, the, the passage from 1 Kings 19 that we read this morning is probably the, the passage that I've come back to more often than any other passage when I'm facing depression and when I've helped counsel other people through depression. Because I think it's an incredibly, incredibly relevant passage. But you need the backdrop of all that's happening to fully be able to understand and appreciate what's happening in the life of Elijah. Now, the people of God have been forsaking the Lord. The king, king Ahab, king of Israel, had married a woman by the name of Jezebel. And Jezebel was an apparently more charismatic, more forceful personality than Ahab himself. And she becomes incredibly influential in the reign of Ahab and among the people of God. Well, a, well Jezebel was a worshiper of the false god Baal. And we already know that the people of God have always kind of had an eye on the prosperity that Baal would promise. That they were always kind of intrigued by this possibility. And so Ahab leads the people of God through Jezebel's influence to begin worshiping Baal. Now Israel, they they didn't stop worshiping the Lord, Yahweh. They they added Baal to Yahweh. And the thought was, is, well... If, the, if Yahweh is the Lord, we'll have, our, we'll have that covered. And if Baal is the Lord, we'll have that covered. So basically, we can cover all of our bases. This sounds very very familiar to, to much modern thinking, doesn't it? That, that we can just add Jesus in like a superstition just to make sure that all of our bases are covered and one day we can get to heaven by some way, by somebody, right? And so God sends Elijah to Israel to confront Ahab and to confront all of Israel. And he stands at the base of Mount Carmel and he confronts them and he says, Choose this day whom you will serve. If Baal is the Lord, you worship Baal. But if the Lord, but if Yahweh is God, you worship him. And they decide that they're going to come up with a way in which they can determine whether it's Baal that is the one true God or whether it is Yahweh that is the one true God. That they are going to both build an altar. And they're going to lay a sacrifice on the altar. But the God who is the, the singular God, the mightiest God, the preeminent God, he will burn and incinerate the offering that's been placed on the off altar. And so 850 false prophets, they gather around the altar of Baal. And they begin to, to wail and screech and scream and pray and dance. They even cut themselves so that their own blood was spilled upon the altar. But hour after hour after hour goes by and there is silence from heaven. The, uh, the, the sacrifice still remains. The altar is still there. There is nothing. And then when it's almost dark, at the very end of the day, Elijah stands and he prays a one-sentence prayer. A one-sentence prayer. Now contrast this with the prayer of the false prophets that are screeching and screaming and and mutilating the flesh. He prays a one-sentence prayer. And across the backdrop of the dark, darkened sky, a missile of fire streaks across the sky and incinerates 
the, all, the offering which had already been had water poured over it. And the, there it is. And all the false prophets are gathered up. And Elijah takes the sword and he slaughters all 850 false prophets. Now, if we're honest, that's the mountaintop of mountaintops. Are y'all with me? <laughs> like, like, that's as good as it gets. And you can imagine, Elijah has had a long and tedious ministry, okay? And at this point, he's got to think, okay, now, now I can go and buy my Winnebago and enjoy the, the profit retirement plan and cash in my Godstone account, uh, which is like the SBC retirement system, right? So I, I can cash in my Godstone account, I can cruise, I, I can go and, you know, kick back, catch some fish, live, live a good life. But that's when Jezebel finds out what's happened. That's when Jezebel finds out that Elijah has slaughtered. And, and Jezebel, who remember is charismatic. Jezebel, who we don't need to think this is a queen and, and, a, and a woman in an ancient time that has no power. That is not the case with Jezebel. She is remarkably powerful, remarkably influential, remarkably charismatic. She has influence over them all. And she says, you give me his head. May what happened to those prophets pale in comparison to what the gods do to me if I don't have him dead within 24 hours. And so you can see the parallel in our lives with, with Elijah. We feel like we're climbing this mountain, don't we? One step at a time. That every step, you, and in your mind, there's just, I'm going to, if I can just get here. Right? Like if I can just get this amount in my savings account, if, if I can just get to this pay, the, the salary threshold, um, if I can just get married, um, if we can just have a baby, if we can just work through communication in our relationship, if, if, if I can just kind of get to a retirement, if I can just get to grandkids, if we can just get them graduated. And so constantly there's these steps, right? And you take a step, and, you, and then you're like, oh, man, there's another one, right? And then you take a step, and oh, man, there, there, there's another one. Uh, you take a step, and there's another one. And you get to the, and then finally you have this climactic moment, like what Elijah had, right? And you think, finally, finally, a dream realized. <laughs> finally, I get there, and I don't see another step. And then you move forward, and you find what Elijah found. That at the top of the mountain is a bluff. And you end up tipping over the other side, right? And so you have Elijah. You'll like this. This is my little stick man, right? He's unhappy. You have Elijah that has climbed and he's climbed and he's climbed and he's climbed. And he's had this mountaintop of all mountaintops. And then as soon as he gets to the top of the mountain, what he finds out is, is that the rug has been pulled out from under him. And here he is tipping over the other side of the mountain. And so you can hear the desperation in his voice when he says, enough, Lord, enough. It is enough. I can't take another step. I can't do this anymore. I can't go on another mission. I can't go preach to more people. I can't confront. I am alone, Lord. Don't you understand that? I am the only one who is standing here. I am the only one defending the covenant. I am the only one upholding the promises. God, can't you understand? I'm tired. This is what depression looks like. This is what depression has looked like in my life. And I, I, I would imagine... That if you're facing it, it's looked the same in your life. That depression is chronic pain. Right? That depression is a chronic pain. It, it's, it's a dull ache that's always there. 
Sometimes it's sharper, sometimes it's less, but it's this dull ache that's always there, that's, that, that it feels like it's, it's smothering, the, smothering you. you. You go to bed and you wake up the next morning with the hope of new mercies, and you wake up and yet you still, you still don't have a baby. You're still not pregnant, right? You, you wake up the next morning and you still think about the abuse. You still think about the divorce. You still think about the abandonment. You still think about your dad that checked out. You, you, you wake up the next morning and your head still hurts. You, you wake up the next morning and your job is still not good. It's still not great. You, you wake up the next morning and your business is still struggling. And so you wake up day in and day out. And you have like this chronic pain, this dull ache in your life that, that won't go away. That depression is like a low-grade fever that's always there. And it's slowly burning away and evaporating all of the joy in your life as it seems like your life is closing in on you. And then you get to the place, ultimately, that Elijah got. Take away my life, Lord. Take away my life. That ultimately, it feels like to die would bring greater comfort to you than to live. You know, we always put rest in peace, right? And the thought is that, that it creeps in because of this chronic pain in your life that I would find more peace in death than I can find in life. My life, in other words, doesn't feel like much of a gift to me. My life doesn't feel like much of a gift to me. Y'all, at the height of my struggles with depression, I, I can remember going to sleep and having dreams, having dreams that the Lord brought me into eternity and feeling relieved by it, feeling relieved by it. I, I have had, and, I, and, I, and even to say it out loud to you feels incredibly dramatic, but it's just the truth that I've had those nights in which my head hurt again and again and again and that I have prayed, God, if it's not going to get better, if it's not going to be different than this, I wish you would just bring me home. I wish you would just bring me home. I would rather my kids be raised with a man that doesn't feel the way that I feel. I would rather my wife be able to be married to a man that isn't as worthless as I feel right now. But there is more comfort and the thought of death right now than the thought of life. And my guess is that some of you have been there. Maybe you've never been able to say it out loud because I wasn't able to say it out loud probably for two years. Maybe you've, you've never been able to even explain it to another place, but there's been a time in which you felt like you tipped over the mountaintop and you came crashing down to the bottom where there's this chronic pain in your life and it feels as though there is no way out. You see, we are tempted to believe that our depression and all of, our, of the thoughts and all of the frustrated prayers and all of the bitter nights will be met with rejection by God. We're, we're tempted to believe that, that we're going to have this, this, this meeting with the Lord and that the Lord is going to see our pain. But the truth is, the truth is, is that our experience will be the same as Elijah's experience. That, that it won't be met with rejection, it will be met with God's kindness. Now, you have to understand, this is essentially Elijah abandoning his ministry. It says that he goes all the way to Beersheba. Beersheba is in the southernmost tip of the kingdom of God. It's the southernmost tip of, of Judah. And he takes him down to Beersheba. And then what does it say? It says he goes a whole other day's journey. He leaves all of his servants there. He leaves all those people that are helping him in his ministry there. And he goes a whole other day forward past there. In other, word, in other words, this is Elijah telling God, that I'm out. I'm out. I'm done. 
I'm not taking another step. I'm leaving the borders of your kingdom. I'm leaving the, the limits of your reign, perhaps, in his mind. I'm, I'm leaving all of that behind. I'm not doing that again. I'm not taking another step. And what would we expect God to do? We would expect God to say, okay, see you, man. I'll get somebody else to do it. But what does God do? Look at this. It says an angel touched him. Elijah ran from God, but God ran after Elijah. Come on, y'all. Elijah ran from God, but God ran after Elijah. Elijah gave up, but God persisted. I want you to think of all the different ways in which Elijah experienced the kindness of God. Elijah, who appears to be in rebellion. Elijah, who appears to, to say, I don't want anything else to do with God. God comes to him, and he begins to minister to him, doesn't he? It says that there, he, he wakes him up. So he's pursued him. He's, wo he's woke him up. He says then at his head is like a cake that's baked. He feeds him. He refreshes him. He gives him water. He tells him to go back to bed. He, he, he says go and, and rest more. Then there's this 40 days and 40 nights into Horeb, which is the strength. It, it would have taken far less than 40 days and 40 nights for him to get from where he was to Horeb. And yet God is allowing him to go because what I think the, I think the sweetest part of all that's, had, it, that, that's said right here is a second time. A second time. Why? Why? Patience on behalf of God. Patience and long suffering. This is how the Lord deals with those of us in our weakness. With patience and long suffering. That He isn't hurried by us. That God doesn't feel like if we don't hurry up and fix all of our problems and get past all of our weaknesses, get past all of our struggles, that His whole plan is compromised. God has already accounted for your weakness through the Lord Jesus. God has already accounted for your weakness through the Lord Jesus. He doesn't need you, and he doesn't need me. And this is the greatest news in the whole world because God will pursue you, and God will persist in your love for you, and he will, he will be patient for you. You see, depression doesn't incur the rejection of God. That's what we think, right? That depression equals, that depression equals rejection, but it does not depression does not equal rejection in the economy of God instead depression depression provokes and calls for and and arouses the mercy of God and from the mercy of God his kindness you see friends neighbors the gospel is for real people the gospel is for real people with real problems it's not for almost perfect people that are just one bubble away it's not for people that have tiny little problems that hardly anybody recognizes. It's not for people that are 99% happy with only 1% of problems. The gospel is for people who are real with real struggles and real sorrow and real doubts and real insecurities and real struggles and real scars and real pain and real sins. Real ones. It's for people that look in the mirror and don't like what they see. It's for people that have more sad days in a week than happy days. It's for people that, that look at their life and see sin and, and see, see, see flaws and see problems. And it's for people that even have doubts about Jesus himself. That the gospel is for real people with real doubts. And that's why it's so wonderful. That's why it's so wonderful. 
You don't have to smile through your sorrow, church. You don't have to rush through the brokenness. God is patient and long-suffering with you. You don't have to prove yourself useful to God. How many of you are trying to do that? See, depression is an opportunity for us to realize that God's love for us isn't dependent upon our usefulness to Him. God loves us because He loves us. It's that simple. That's the gospel. That's what Jesus has verified and validated through the cross. That he doesn't love us because we can, what we can contribute to his kingdom. Because we contribute weakness. He loves us because he loves us. And so depression, depress, the depressed will experience the mercies and the kindness of God in a way that no person else will ever know them. Now, I want you to notice exactly how well Eli- God knows Elijah's needs. God knows Elijah's needs in a way that only someone who is incredibly near to him would be able to know. He knows exactly what Elijah needs. He knows exactly what Elijah what Elijah's hang-ups are. He knows exactly how to care for Elijah in a way that will be able to, to put Elijah back together again and be able to restore him into the life of his, his ministry. And that's what I want us to see, that depression will reveal God's nearness. Depression will reveal... God's nearness. Now, uh, there, there are specific ways in which God ministers to him, and, and it's in these ways that we're able to see the multi-layered, complex nature of how God has designed us to be. I want you to notice this. Now, this is, I think this is so cool, okay? So first, he says, uh, arise and eat. Now, you remember, we've, we've talked about how in the past, how in Hebrew there's not exclamation points, right? That the way that something is emphasized is how? By repeating it. And if you repeat something three times, what is it? That, that's something of, of, the utmost, of the utmost emphasis. That's like putting five exclamation points in, in English. It's, it's like those annoying people on, and I hope none of y'all are that person. I wish I hadn't said the word annoying. But uh, I've already said it, so let me commit to it. It's, it's like those annoying people on Facebook that are writing all caps, right? And, and, and so I read it like they're always shouting at me. Do y'all do that? I don't know why I do that. That's, that's probably a character flaw. But when I, when I read that, I read like you're always shouting at me when you're doing it. Okay, when, when you repeat something three times in Hebrew, it's like somebody's shouting it. It's like somebody's emphasizing it, writing in all caps. Now look what he says. Verse 5, he says, arise and eat. Verse 7, arise and eat. And then verse 8, he arose and ate. You see this? It's a point of emphasis. He's drawing this out. Now, what has happened since before he does this? Nothing, right? This is the first way that God cares for them. And how does he care for Elijah? Through his physical needs. He hasn't read a Bible verse to him. He hasn't said, thus saith the Lord to him yet. He has sent an angel to love him, to care for him, to minister to him. Then, after that, he has this 40-day and 40-night walk. Now, I, I am convinced that the reason that he has this 40-day and 40-night walk that's just far longer than it would have taken him to get there is why. Have you ever went on a walk to clear your head? To clear your head? To, to, to get your feet back under you? To, to kind of know what you need to do? And then look at what it says in verse 9. So he's, he's, he's fed him. He's given him water. He's put him back to sleep two different times. He's woke him back up. He's done all of that. He sent him on this long walk, clearing his head. And then, verse 9, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. You see, I think it's helpful for us to think of ourselves like this. That we are physical. We are emotional. And we are spiritual. 
that we, in other words, the, the secular world wants you to believe that you're nothing but a body, that you're nothing but impulses. You're nothing but some, some kind of instinct that, that's slowly evolving. So you should chase every impulse. You should, you should enjoy everything. You, you should continue to focus on, on what you experience in the body, right? Then, then you have New Age philosophers, which really isn't new. It's been around thousands of years. And they would say that you're only emotional, right? It's, it's only what you feel. It's only, it's only how you feel about things and how you think about things, right? And then you have other groups of people that would, and, and even these people are often in the church, they think that we're only spiritual, right? That we're just some immortal soul and that one day oh, this soul is going to leave this body and we're going to be floating around in this disembodied spirit in the stratosphere somewhere. And you know what Paul would say? That's nonsense. That's nonsense. 1 Corinthians 15 was written to people who think like that. 1 Corinthians 15 was written and he says, do you not understand that you're going to have a bodily resurrection in the same way that Jesus did? That God didn't just create you as a spirit. God created you as a spirit and a body. That God has created you to be who you are as you are. And he's not going to resurrect like your spirit and leave your body in the ground. No, he's going to resurrect all of who you are. That is, if you take away your emotions or you take away your spirit or you take away your body, you're not you. You take away any of those three parts, right? Think about how, what De Deuteronomy chapter 6 says. This is the verse that Jesus quotes when he's asked, what is the greatest, ver what is the greatest commandment of all the commandments? And what, is, what does Jesus say? Love the Lord with all of your heart, spiritual, right? With all of your mind, that's emotional, right? And with all of your strength, it's physical, right? And do you see that when you have... Elijah here, and he's depressed, and he's at the end of himself, and he's beaten down. How does God care for him? Y'all, this is instructive to us as we counsel one another, as we bear burdens with one another. Th that first he comes, and he meets the physical need, okay? Here, here's what that means. You need the Scripture in your life. The Scriptures are instructive in your life. They are sufficient for your life. They, they, they can help you be able to transform the way that you think, and the way that you think transforms the way that you feel— but you know, sometimes you just need a nap. Sometimes you need a vacation. Sometimes, sometimes you need a day off. Sometimes you need to start eating well. That in other words, if you have a vitamin deficiency, or you have a glucose problem, or you have a, a, a problem with a pituitary gland in your brain, you can read all the Bible verses that you want to in the world and still never be right. And still never be able to figure out why you feel the way that you feel. And what I'm wanting you to say, brothers and sisters, is that this is biblically warranted. This is not new age mumbo jumbo. This is biblically warranted. This is how God himself cared for his servant who was at the place in which he wanted to die. That physical health promotes spiritual health. Spiritual health promotes emotional health. And when we find ourselves depressed, depression is, in its essence, an invitation to rest. It's an invitation to Sabbath. It's an invitation to stop doing all the things that you're trying to do and to figure out what's going on with your life and to realize that the world won't stop because you did. That your life won't fall apart because you did. That the kingdom of God will not fall apart because you did. And that's what brings out about this, this strange scene that happens just after that. 
right? You've probably read this, and this has always just kind of been an enigmatic passage for me. But after the word of the Lord comes to Elijah, you have this strange thing, and God calls Elijah. He says, come out to the cleft of the rock, and he brings him out on the edge of the rock, right? Now, you have to understand the Horeb. Horeb is another name for Sinai. This is, this is the same mountain, okay? So that's... So the, the mountain in which Elijah is on is the very same mountain in which Moses had received the call from God in the burning bush and then received the Ten Commandments from the Lord to give unto Israel. And do you remember what happened when Moses stood there on Sinai? There was a huge storm that swept in, right, that represented the presence of God. It, 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 was a, it, it was a picture of God's transcendence. It was a picture of God's holiness. And it was a, a storm that was so terrifying that, that Israel itself said, we don't want that anymore. You just tell Moses and let Moses tell us because we don't want to see that anymore. Now think about what he says. He says, go out, sin on the, on the mountain. And the Lord passed by in a great and strong wind toward the mountains. But the Lord was not in the wind. And then, after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. Now, what is, what is that picture? The, the picture that he's making here is the picture of what happened to Moses. This is what Elijah's expecting. This is what we expect, isn't it? That he's expecting what happened to Moses, the miraculous, right? He's expecting to see this himself. He's expecting to have some kind, of, some kind of miraculous sign from God that's going to prove that everything's okay, that's going to prove that God's going to smite Jezebel and wipe her from the face of the earth. It's going to prove that he's going to uphold Elijah as, as, the, as the covenant bearer of his name. And God says, I'm not doing any of those things. I'm not doing any of those things. How often, how often do we pray? How often do we pray and we say, God, I need you to heal me. And if God doesn't heal me, we assume that God isn't there. How often do we say, God, I need you to fix my job, and if God doesn't come in and fix our job and make our boss better or give us, give us job security, we think, well, God must not be in this. How often do we come into a situation where we God, I want, I'm, I'm pleading with you to provide for us a child. And if God doesn't provide for us a child, we think God must not be there. That's the point for Elijah, because how does God come? After the fire, the sound of a low whisper. A low whisper. The, the literal translation isn't a whisper. It's a sheer silence. A sheer silence. And in other words, the wind is gone and the earthquake is gone and the fire is gone and the birds stop tweeting and the, and the clouds stop moving and the sound of the wind stops blowing and there is nothing but silence. It's subtle. It's, it's almost imperceptible. But there in the silence, there where you can't see him, there where you can't hear him, there, there in all of it is God. He's God. But God had never abandoned Elijah. God had been right there in the midst of the, si of the silence. God had been near to him the whole time. You see, the absence of a miracle doesn't mean the abandonment of God. That's the point. The absence of a miracle doesn't mean the abandonment of God. A man by the name of Stephen Altrach, he said this about depression. He says, depression is like wearing dark tinted glasses. So that it doesn't matter what's going on in your life. If somebody would classify it as good or bad, as happy or sad. It doesn't matter what you see, where you look, what time of day it is. Wherever you look, it just looks dark. It just looks gloomy. It just looks hopeless. That, that those places where you used to see God, God seems concealed. Those places where everybody else seems to see God, you don't see him. 
all, everywhere that you look, instead, what you see is despair, and what you see is hopelessness. And that's the point that God is driving home to Elijah, and that God is driving home to us. So what are we to do? That's where we hold fast to the promises of God. That's where we hold fast to the promises, like what he read what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is near the brokenhearted, and he saves the crushed in spirit. You see, brothers and sisters, you have hope even when you don't feel like it. You have hope even when you don't feel like it. You have hope even when you don't see it. You have hope even when you see no sign of the nearness of God because you have the promised nearness of God. And you can cling to that, and it can get you through one more day. You can cling to that, and it can get you through one more day because you see one day, One day you're going to look back over your life the same way that we're looking back over Elijah's life. And when you look back over your life, those moments in which you couldn't see God and in those moments in which you couldn't hear God, you will realize that God's fingerprints are everywhere. That that through the sheer silence of your life, God has been there. That's the point of those weird verses in verses 15 through 18. In verses 15 through 18, he, he, he begins to say, and, and he comes to Elijah, and he says, Elijah, Elijah, why are you here? And this is God's way of saying, Elijah, can you not trust me? Can you not trust me? Can you not see that I'm right here with you? Do you not believe that I am going to have your back now like I had it on Carmel when you saw the fire? Do you not believe? And he begins to say something that seems strange to us. He says, what I want you to do is I want you to go and I want you to anoint Haziel as the king. And then I want you to leave Haziel, I want you to go, and I want you to name, uh, anoint Jehu as the king of Israel. And then I want you to leave Jehu, and I want you to go, and I want you to uh, anoint Elisha as your replacement. Now, I don't know about you, I don't know how much that would have encouraged me. <laughs> but, but, but the point is not lost on Elijah. You understand? Elijah thinks that he is the sole protector of the covenant. Elijah thinks he is the one that is superintending the promises of God. He thinks he is the one that is going to defeat Baal worship and that he is the one that is going to achieve the worship of Yahweh on Yahweh's behalf. And do you know what God is saying? These promises are sustained by me and by me alone. They have nothing to do with you. That I, I bear the weight of my promises. I bear the weight of my covenants. I bear the weight of my people. Not you. You see, the, pro- the reason that he is to anoint Haziel is because it's not you. It's not Elijah. Jehu, not you. Elisha, not you. That's the point. God's promises were resting on God. You see, God has a plan that we can't see, and he has a providence that we can't stop. And the problem that Elijah had is the same thing that I recognized in myself so often as I struggled with my own depression is that I have a view of myself that is too important and of my God that is too puny. And it takes my whole life, and it moves it out of kilter, and I place me at the center. And you know what? I can't bear the weight of God's promises, and I can't bear the weight of my family and I can't bear the weight of the ministry and I can't bear the weight of the loss and I can't bear the weight of everybody's crises I can't bear the weight but I'm not supposed to I'm not supposed to you see depression brings you to the end of yourself It wipes away from you every false illusion you have of your own strength. It crushes every inkling of self-sufficiency and strength within. And it brings you to the end of yourself because depression will realize one day, one day, God's greatness. It points you beyond yourself. 
See, he says in verse 18, yet I will leave the 7,000 in Israel and all that have not bowed to Baal. In other words, you keep saying that it's just you, Elijah. You keep saying it's, it's I and I only that stand, but there's 7,000 of them, in fact. And I'm going to save them. But you're not. Not ruined because of you, in other words. That my plan, my providence will not be stopped. It will not be ruined because you failed. Because you're not perfect. Because you're not strong enough. Because you're damaged. You see, you can't ruin everything in your life. I think some of you need to hear that this morning. How many of us believe that we're one bad decision away, one bad parenting mistake away, one, one, bad, one bad day away from just ruining everything? But you can't ruin everything because everything doesn't, ruin, doesn't rest upon you. See, depression makes us realize that we're damaged people. And that thought is almost unpalatable to us. It's still difficult for me to say it. That I'm damaged. But you know what? That's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus came. Jesus came because I'm damaged. And do you want to know the glory of the gospel? The glory of the gospel is that God has chosen by his kindness. God has chosen through his nearness to manifest his greatness by shining his light through the cracked pots that is us. That yeah, we're damaged. God has chosen to build his entire kingdom out of living stones that are damaged people. And through those damaged people, he is going to make his greatness known to the world. You can't, you can't ruin it because God has redeemed it and God is working through it. Let's pray. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. -on -one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. We would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon. 